0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're bringing some much-needed comic relief to the conversation about fossil fuels and carbon pollution. The facts are grim. Human addiction to oil and coal are causing increased severe weather, stress on water and food systems, and dying oceans. Over the next hour, we will talk about the story of our hot and crowded world, while also sharing some laughs with our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We begin with Joram Bauman, a stand-up economist and author of the new book, The Cartoon Guide to Climate Change. He has a PhD in economics and promises the presentation he's about to give won't make you yawn. Please welcome Joram Bauman.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. Tonight, my name is Joram Bauman. I appear before you this evening, ladies and gentlemen, as the world's first and only stand-up economist. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a niche market. Uh, I figure before I go any further, I should uh, I should, I should show you my T-shirt. It's my uh, my it's my enjoy capitalism T-shirt. Uh, made in China. If you look at the tag on the back, it's actually made out of uh, 80% cotton and 20% irony. It's uh, dry clean only. Uh, I did I did live in China. I. Uh, Figured if I was going to work on climate issues, I should learn something about China. So I finagled a position at a university in China and uh, lived lived in Beijing for five months. Uh, And I lived in a housing complex in Beijing uh, that houses 400,000 people. Uh, And I was one of two non-Chinese people who lived there. Uh, It was me and the guy that everybody there referred to as the black guy. Uh, And then one day I was walking down the street to the bus stop. And I saw a black guy uh, and I kind of lost my sense of propriety a little bit. Like I stared at him a little bit and finally I kind of walked up to him and I kind of pointed at him a little bit and I said, look, excuse me. I said, you must be the, but before I could get the words out, he pointed at me <laughs> and he said, excuse me. He said, you must be the white guy. <laughs> I was like, sure enough. Uh, he was the black guy. I was the white guy. Uh, he was there from Ghana. He was there on a scholarship. Super nice guy. We went to McDonald's. We had lunch. International sign of friendship. Uh, it's actually great to be back here in, in San Francisco. I went, I went to, I grew up in San Francisco. I was born and raised here. My, my family still lives here. Uh, and I went to Lowell High School. I was one of the few, yeah, Lowell High School. I was, I was, I was one, of, one of the, one of the a few white, white kids in, in Lowell High School. Um, so so that, that joke resonates with me. I tell that joke I tell that joke partly because there's something, and we talk about this in the cartoon book a little bit, uh, there's something, it's my own personal theory of the world that I'm very proud of. I call it the Five Chinas Theory of the World. And the Five Chinas Theory of the World says you can take world population, which is how many people? 7 billion people? You divide by 5, you get 1.4 billion, which is approximately the population of China, Uh, So you can actually divide the world population up into five chunks of the size of China. So China, India is about the same size as China. Add up everybody else in developing Asia. So Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, the Philippines, Vietnam, put them all together about the same size as China. Uh, The rich world is the fourth China. So North America, Europe, Japan, uh, uh, South Korea, a couple other countries, put them all together about the same size as China. Uh, And then everybody else is principally Africa and South America. Uh, So, if you think about the world as being divided up into five, these five groups of the size of China, um, if you look at world carbon emissions, at the start of this century, the rich world was responsible for about half of world CO2 emissions. Uh, And really, I think there are going to be two big stories of this century, and this is how we start out the cartoon book, is by saying that story number one for this century is going to be looking at, is going to be about economic growth and development, especially in poor countries in the world. We've seen this in China, hopefully we'll see this in uh, Africa and uh, India over the coming century. I think the other big story this century, though, is going to be dealing with the environmental impacts of dealing with 7 billion people growing to 9 or 11 billion people who are all trying to live the lifestyles uh, that we live. So, um, uh, so that's the five China's the rule that I, that I talk about. And that's sort of why I think that, that climate change uh, turns out to be an important issue. So what, what I've learned, I, I um, actually make a living doing stand-up comedy about economics, believe it or not. Uh, my father doesn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I do a lot of colleges and corporate events and, and, and things like this uh, and what I've learned is that if you talk to people, if you make people laugh for 45 minutes, then you can talk to them about sort of any, anything that you want for 5 or 10 minutes and they'll be open to it. Uh, they won't necessarily agree with you, you know, it's not, I, I, one of the benefits of being an economist is you get the benefits of low expectations, right? <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of it is about lowering expectations. Um, I, I often say that uh, if you think about the way that economists sort of... The reason why economists are often optimists is that we have such low expectations for human behavior. <laughs> you know, I mean, basically, if we, see, if we see two old ladies crossing the street uh, and one of them gets, has a thug come by and knock her down and take her purse, the economist is the person who says, Hey, look, the other one made it. <laughs> uh, so... Um, uh, so having this sort of sense, of sense of optimism and also the sense of low expectations, I don't think comedy is the sort of thing that you can you know, convince, uh, convince everybody that immediately that, for instance, carbon taxes, which, which is what I work on, is the, uh, is the best policy in the world. But I think it opens doors. Um, and where I go from that is talking about this policy that, that, that I work on as, as an economist, uh, which is environmental tax reform. The idea that we should have higher taxes on things we want less of, Uh, like carbon emissions, and then we can afford to have lower taxes on things we want more of, like jobs and income and savings and investment. Uh, And that's an idea that um, uh, economists across the political spectrum think is a pretty good idea. Uh, And this is where I find common ground, even with folks like George Will. Uh, So George Will is a columnist for the Washington Post, pretty conservative fellow. He doesn't believe that humans are partly responsible for increasing uh, uh, global temperatures, but but he came to one of my classes a few years ago, and I asked him if he would support replacing part of the payroll tax, part of the employment tax in this country, with a carbon tax. And he said that he was all for it. Because he hates the payroll tax. (laughs) And with unemployment at six or seven percent, I hate the payroll tax. Right, and Al Gore hates the payroll tax. Al Gore says we should tax what we burn and not what we earn. So I asked George Will what he thought about the fact that he and Al Gore agreed on this particular issue. (laughs) And George Will said, well, he said, uh, you know, a a policy should not be held responsible for the people who believe in it. (laughs) So certainly economists kind of across the political spectrum think that this is a pretty good idea, this sort of environmental tax reform idea. Uh, And it's an idea that that, um, uh, there's actually a place that's done this. So I live in Seattle, just to my north, the Canadian province of British Columbia, has what many economists consider to be the best climate policy in the world, actually implemented by a right-of-center government, that said, look, we want to do something about climate change, we want to be market friendly, we don't want to grow government, and they implemented this revenue neutral carbon tax. So revenue neutral means all the money that comes in from the carbon tax is used to reduce personal and corporate income taxes in the province of British Columbia, there's an offset for low income households, uh, really a very smart policy. Uh, In my view, if you asked economists to design a climate policy, they would give you something very similar uh, to the BC carbon tax. So I actually work in Washington State with a group that's called Carbon Washington. Our website is carbonwa.org. We're uh, running a November 2016 ballot measure to bring a BC-style carbon tax to Washington State, the basic idea being that um, uh, we're going to have a carbon tax, and the BC carbon tax is not nothing. It's it's, it's $30 uh, per ton of CO2, so that's the equivalent of about 30 cents a gallon of gasoline, about 3 cents a kilowatt hour of coal-fired power half that for natural gas. So it's it's not nothing. But they also have the lowest personal income tax rates in Canada. They have the lowest corporate income tax rates in the G8 group of rich democracies. So there's a payout on the other end through the economic benefits, not just the environmental benefits. And they also have environmental benefits. So since 2008, they've reduced carbon emissions um, uh, by maybe 10 or 15 percent, which is really a terrific start. So what we're working on in Washington state is essentially to have a a BC style carbon tax. So again, fossil fuel prices are going to go up, but we're going to Uh, reduce the state sales tax by a full percentage point, which may or may not sound like all that much, but nickels and dimes add up over the course of the year. And basically what it means is a couple hundred dollars a year more for fossil fuels and a couple hundred dollars less a year for everything else. Uh, And um, if you're interested in learning more, the website uh, for this group, again, is carbonwa.org. But the biggest challenge that we face, I think, in dealing with this is really is breaking through that initial skepticism, cynicism, opposition uh, that we face. I think that if we could actually convince people that we were actually going to cut sales taxes, then they would be much more open to it. But there's a hesitancy that sort of says, no, I don't, uh, you know, I don't believe that you're going to do that. I don't believe the government is going to reduce sales taxes. And I think that's part of where, I think that's part of where comedy can come in. Um, so I, uh, it, it's just, it's because it's about establishing sort of a, a human relationship. Uh, and um, I often think of comedy as, I, I think of like the, the, the carbon tax pitch that i Generally, I do a, a, an hour-long routine, and I'll, I'll spend five or 10 minutes talking about, uh, about carbon pricing. And I think about it as sort of the pill that you put inside the ball of meat that you feed to the dog, right? <laughs> uh, uh, it's not necessarily the favorite part of the routine. Uh, but they listen to it. And I, I generally end my little climate change pitch that I give to them by telling them that I, that I will now go back to telling them jokes. Uh, and I thank them for putting up with uh, the, the climate material. Uh, and I say that, um, uh, you know, I, I appreciate them 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 putting up with it, uh, although I, I once did a show for a very conservative crowd in Minnesota, and this fellow came up to me at the end of my talk and said that the stuff I said about climate change was the funniest part of my whole routine. <laughs> yes. And I think there's a little bit about, um, I think there's a little bit that's sort of self-deprecating that works, uh, and and maybe some of these last jokes will help express some of that. So... Uh, I will share with you some of my uh, you might be an economist if jokes. Uh, so you might you might be an economist if you're an expert on money, but you dress like a flood victim. Um, uh, you might be an economist uh, if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Um, uh, you might be an economist uh, uh, if uh, if you're against the death penalty because it's too expensive. It's, it's sad sad but true, yes. Uh, You might be a macroeconomist if you think the chicken crossed the road because of a series of unexpected developments in global financial markets. (laughs) Uh, You might be a game theorist if you're an expert on poker, but you've never actually played a hand. (laughs) You might be an environmental economist if you spend a lot of time flying around the world, telling people that we need to spend less time (laughs) flying around the world. Uh, You might be an economist, If you've ever gone to a bank in the hopes of getting a date. (laughs) Uh, If you plan to have your children born in December instead of January so that you can maximize the discounted present value of the child tax credit. (laughs) I see some heads nodding around the room, yes. Uh, You might be an economist if you think that supply and demand is a good answer to questions like, where do babies come from? Uh, You might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later. (laughs) Uh, uh, I I, I will say I have have a couple of jokes that are not just about uh, economics. I have a joke about speaking Spanish, which I do reasonably well, but not perfectly. As I learned a few years ago, this is well before I was married. And I was down in Ecuador practicing my Spanish in a bar with a young woman. Hey, economists are people too. And finally, she turned to me and she said, in Spanish, she said, hey, if you're so great, like, how come you're not married? And I wanted to say something sort of flirtatiously self-deprecating. You know, like, I don't know, maybe women just don't like me. Uh, and what I ended up saying was, tal vez no me gustan las mujeres, which means maybe I don't like women. Um, when I found out what I said, I felt very embarazada, uh, which, means, uh, uh, which means pregnant, Uh yeah, I'm learning Chinese now. There are no false cognates. That's the good news. Um, I also have a joke. Uh, this joke rarely works at comedy clubs on a Saturday night. Uh, it's a joke about quinoa. Uh, I'm in San Francisco. Maybe it'll do better. How many people here know what quinoa is? Uh, yeah, everybody. I guess they put it in the water. Uh, until recently, I believed that quinoa was an ancient grain... But then I did a show in Manhattan and was informed by somebody in the front row that it, in fact, is not an ancient grain because you can eat it during Passover. (laughs) It's a seed, apparently. That's the Talmud lesson for the day. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's actually a meta-joke about quinoa, so it's all right. The the meta-joke is that it's very difficult to tell jokes about quinoa because 90% of the American public has no idea what quinoa is. And of the people who do know what it is, half of them think it's pronounced quinoa. (laughs) So the only place where I've ever been able, able to successfully tell jokes about quinoa, except in San Francisco, apparently, uh, is at the Hippie Food Co-op. Because at the Hippie Food Co-op, not only does everybody know the substance named quinoa, at the Hippie Food Co-op, everybody knows a person named quinoa. I've offended somebody here in the front row. I'm sorry. See, uh, This is... this. This is, this is the challenge. The quinoa lovers are going to come after me. Um, I'm happy to say that uh, 2013, the, the year that, that ended recently, was a big year for economics comedy. Um, that was not a punchline, but thank you. Uh, I got to be on the PBS NewsHour. Uh, yes, now, I don't know how much you all know about the world of stand-up comedy, but let me just tell you this. In the world of stand-up comedy, ladies and gentlemen, it does not get any bigger than the PBS NewsHour. <laughs> been getting phone calls nonstop on my rotary dial telephone. Uh, It was actually pretty amazing. They interviewed three economists on the show. They interviewed Robert Schiller, who won the Nobel Prize. They interviewed Joseph Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize. And they interviewed me. Uh, I felt like like kind of a self-aware version of Sarah Palin. And what did they ask me? A moment of TV fame on the PBS NewsHour, they asked me if I'd ever bombed on stage. All right, now, a couple of things about this, right? First of all, I am not afraid of failure. I'm an economist. <laughs> and secondly, I'm a professional comedian, right? So if a joke doesn't work, you just sort of keep throwing stuff out there until you find something that sticks, which is basically the same thing that the Fed and the Treasury have been doing for the last six or seven years. Uh, Finally, I had to admit on the PBS NewsHour that, in fact, I had bombed on stage. Uh, The worst show I ever did was in October of 2008. You remember what was happening to the stock market and the global economy in October of 2008? Yeah, it looked like we were going back into the Great Depression. October of 2008, I did a show in Colorado Springs for a group of bankers. Uh, Yes, and uh, um, they were not happy campers. And comedy is kind of a violent business, right? If you're doing well, then you're killing. Uh, and if you're doing poorly, then you're bombing. Uh, and I totally bombed that show. And I actually spent a fair amount of time afterwards sort of soul-searching, soul trying to figure out, like, where had I lost the audience, where, you know, where I lost the connection with this uh, audience of bankers in Colorado Springs in October of 2008. And I finally realized that I lost them on my opening line. And my opening line was, Hey, how's it going? Wow. <laughs> yes. uh, I've since then done a number of other shows for banks, and uh, they've gone much better, especially because I've learned an important lesson. I've learned to get paid in advance. Because <laughs> uh, you never know whether the, the, you know, the bank is gonna be there for you tomorrow. Uh, well, uh, maybe I should end with that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you wanna see more, my website is standupeconomist.com. I'm excited to, to join the rest of the conversation for the evening, and thank you all so much for coming out for the yeah. night.
0: You're on Bauman, thank you. thank you. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about climate uh, comedy and economics at Climate One today. And my guests were yeah. joined now by Jonah Sachs, CEO of Free Range. And they're one of the producers of the Story of Stuff series, very popular on the internet. And Joran Bauman is the author of the cartoon Introduction to Climate Change. Uh, Yoram, let's talk a little bit about the book. You start the book with, there's two stories, really, in the 21st century. There's this very positive story of, of uh, healthy, wealthy people, 10 billion people, and then we'll get uh, Jonah in on this. But frame the, the book and saw how it looks at those two overarching stories for the 21st century.
1: Yeah, well, I think that the, the first story, the economic growth story, really is a very positive story. I mean, I think the, the best example I have of that is you look at China. So in 2006, China passed the U.S. as uh, the number one source of CO2 emissions in the world, um, uh, and a lot of that, I mean, China's been growing at 10% a year for 30 years, and and having been there, you know, yes, they have some environmental problems, some other problems, but they've also experienced a great deal of uh, growth in living standards, and uh, I guess as an economist, I have to say I, I sort of hope that that wave of development continues in India and Africa and other places in the world where people don't have access to electricity, to transportation, to the things that we sort of take for granted. but in the, so in 2006, China passed the U.S. to be the number one CO2 emitter in the world. Roughly this year, next year, China will, will be at double U.S. levels in terms of CO2. And even at double U.S. levels, China has four times more people than the U.S. does. So even at double U.S. levels, China is at half our level per capita. So that gives you really a sense of the, of the magnitude of, the, of the, the challenge that we face. And that's why I like to talk about this, um, this five Chinas Theory of the world that I have, and we talk about this in the book as well. And um, partly that the I tell I tell a joke about um, about being in China and being in this neighborhood with 400,000 people, and I was the white guy, and there was only other one only one other non-Chinese person there who was the black guy. Um, and sometimes that joke gets a little bit of um, you know people are a little nervous about that joke. But partly I tell that joke because if you divide the world up into these five Chinas, like I was suggesting, you really you get in very broad strokes, to overgeneralize, you get a white person, a black person, and three Asian people. Right. And um, uh, that's a good way to think about the world, and most of the people in that story are are poor. Uh, and so the economic growth angle is, a, is, is an important one. It's, um, it's one that's almost certainly going to happen over the course of the century. I would argue as an economist that we would like to have it happen over the course of the century. And then I think the second story is dealing with the environmental impacts of of having seven or nine billion or 11 billion people um, uh, living the lifestyles that we live.
0: And Jonah Sachs, that second story about the the climate impact, et cetera, uh, facts are out there, the facts are abundant, and yet they're not really breaking through, they're not causing the individual or governmental or collective action that is necessary to meet the challenge, why?
2: I think people are overwhelmed with facts right now. I mean, there's a time in human history where facts were like gold. You know, if you controlled information, um, you had power, people sought information, a book had a tremendous uh, value and not everyone could even read it. And now we're just awash and overwhelmed in facts. And add to that the fact that people can um, have platforms to communicate Who don't necessarily um, have our trust or support there's so much information out there we don't know how to sort through the amount or the credibility of it but as human beings we've always really uh, organized our sense of meaning and purpose around stories we 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 agree with stories we live by stories we listen to stories and say that connects with my values and who i am and therefore i will go along with that and i will act on it we even have a, a lot of evidence that people's lives are built around rituals that go with stories and we see that of course in in ancient cultures, and still to this day. Um, so I think that we need to encode these, this information in ways that don't just appeal to people saying, yes, I believe that, or no, I don't, or yes, that's a fact, but well, here's a counterfact for it. Comedy is totally one way to do that. And um, you know, with, with uh, storytelling on the internet, for instance, stories can travel and hold those facts and, and move them forward. So, um, yeah, I think we need to be better storytellers and continue to be better storytellers.
0: And does it need to be a hopeful and positive story? Or does it, or, I mean, because it's hard to be optimistic and cheery or funny about climate because it's a pretty dark story. It can be. The yeah. threats, the challenges are unprecedented in human history.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it is a difficult and dark story. It's a story that I've started to tell my seven-year-old daughter um, and try to figure my way through it, but it's a story that if we can't provide any hope and if we can't provide a path for the listener, like uh, stories have always traveled that really make their listener believe that they can be the hero of their own life story. And if we're just telling a story that makes people feel like they're the villain of their own life story or that they're helpless in, in the, the, the damsel in distress, if you will, in the old fairy tale model, that's not a story that people will act on or adopt as a kind of core myth and belief. Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey, which is really about listeners listening to a story about an ordinary person accomplishing extraordinary things. And that is the kind of template for stories that have always traveled and spread. So I think we need to tell stories that do give people a sense of agency and a sense of belief that more is possible without papering over the very difficult you know, reality that we're that we
0: facing. You're on Bama, do you think about that? The stories and uplifting and sort of comedy as a way to kind of, are you informing people, providing them obviously some relief, op- opening doors, access?
1: Yeah, some, certainly some of that. And I try not to, I actually don't spend too much time when I do public presentations talking about climate science. I think people either, they're either on board or they're not on board. And I actually skip pretty quickly to the tax reform part of it because that's where I feel like I can find common ground even with folks who are not necessarily on board with the, with the climate science, the George Will folks who um, nobody really likes the tax system that we have now. Uh, so the idea of changing to a tax system where we tax bad things instead of taxing good things, um, I think has a lot of appeal, appeal sort of across the political spectrum. So I try to focus on that. And to the extent that I talk about climate issues, um, I'm gonna talk, I cover the basics uh, of climate science, I, I don't. I don't want to s- imply that I that I jettison that because I think it's important to cover it. Um, but um, I talk about it mostly as as a um, as a risk factor. I mean, it's, it we are heading into sort of terra incognita, right? We're heading into this this unknown land, and it. I think it, it's plausible, as we say in, in the in the cartoon book about climate change, it's possible that it could turn out to be okay. Uh, it's possible it could turn out to be a disaster, and. There are smart things that we can do to to avoid taking that risk.
0: You talk about it's possible that climate change is caused by broccoli, but probably not likely. Um, that's one of the probably things not. in the in the book. Uh, but let's talk about risk because individuals we're used to managing risk personally. Most people have fire insurance. They wear seat belts. Uh, act prudently. You know, uh, maybe not in Washington State, no seatbelts? Okay. Uh,
1: but well, 50 comes- years ago, maybe not.
0: Right. Uh, but collective risk, when it comes to you talk about an insurance policy for the planet, we're not so good at collective risk if we think something bad's going to happen to someone else outside our family or tribe.
1: Well, that's true. And people are not necessarily all that great about uh, thinking about risks to themselves.
0: Drinking, smoking? Sure.
1: And I think it was a challenge 50 years ago to get people to wear seatbelts, right, or to pass seatbelt laws. I think that part part of the underlying challenge, as I see it, is that you know the average the average person spends what five minutes a year thinking about politics, um, uh, and I have I have folks I know I, since I think about climate change all the time I come to California and I, and I ask people like you know what do you know what do you think about California's climate policy AB thirty two the cap and trade system because I sort of get up and I eat this stuff for breakfast, and there are people who live in California who are like the what, uh, and that's. It's, it's breaking through that. I mean, that's, that's, that's I think, where stories can, can be helpful. You know, they may not know that, but they know about the woman who was elected to the Senate almost because, of the, because she castrated pigs in her youth, right? Like, that's a story that catches. <laughs> well, this point that you're making about people
2: thinking about politics for, you know, five minutes a year... Uh, Politics are also a place where we can think more broadly and we, where our minds shift into thinking about the future and thinking about the kind of world we want. Whereas, you know, day to day, it's very difficult to make decisions or to break habits and to uh, make positive decisions, especially if you think your individual actions won't make a huge difference. I think what's, what's so beautiful about the, the carbon tax solution is that it allows us, when we are in that space of making a rational decision, if we can, if we can tell a positive and profound story that moves that needle forward, um, then we don't have to, every single day of our lives, make the right choice for us. The market helps us make the right choices every day by putting a price on carbon. We're used to dealing with market forces, and if things are more expensive, we tend not to buy them. Companies respond. So I think really what we need is that giant push to tell that story um, and break through, you know, especially since Washington is such a mess, on the local level and start, like B.C. has done, start to scale that up. Um, that's a story that really needs to be told. Unfortunately, so much climate stories being told are about individual action only, and I think that's a real missed opportunity because you get people excited. I'm going to do something. I'm gonna buy a Prius. I'm going to get solar panels, and yet they don't necessarily see the change, whereas wholesale changes can happen with things like these economic policies.
0: Well, you are, I want to play some clips we have from some uh, co- comedians who uh, have done some political treatments of this sort of thing and this gives you a sense of where some people get their news these days and and where people do think about politics. Let's listen to these clips of of John Stewart and John Oliver.
1: There's that Gallup poll that came out last month which found one in four Americans is skeptical of all the effects of climate change and thinks this issue's been exaggerated. Who gives a That doesn't
2: matter. You don't need people's opinions on a fact. as well have a poll asking which number is bigger, 15 or 5.
1: There is really only one solution to get Republicans to do something about climate change. Barack Obama must become a global warming denier. He must ride up to Congress in a hunger with a gun rack and tell them, I was wrong and you were right.
0: So Jonas X, that would be quite an interesting Twist of the plot there for uh, uh, Barack Obama to become a, a climate change denier, but let's talk about the, the, you know, the role of humor in something that is so dark. You know, do, do, does it polarize? I mean, dismissing and, and putting down deniers, that can be polarizing dismissive and can cause resentment and, and perhaps backfire.
2: Yeah, I think that you, you, know, you have to be careful about what you're doing for each audience that you're trying to reach. And I do think that we spend a lot of time as uh, climate communicators thinking about that imagined audience that's out there that is, totally doesn't believe it, that's not on board, and how do we bring them on board? But so much of the uh, public polling shows us that the, the concern and desire to see movement across, in the US at least, is far greater than we ever saw with civil rights, for instance. It's far greater than uh, even the, the opposition to the Vietnam War. These things made movements that move things, but we're not mobilized. So if we keep thinking about, well, we might offend and polarize the climate deniers out there, most of the climate denial, denial movement is a funded kind of media campaign. It's not that we need to get that last 20 or 30% on board with us. We need to mobilize the 70% and get them excited about something. And I think what this kind of comedy that you're seeing, these clips really mainstream and make it acceptable. If John Stewart is up there ranting, well, I can do that too, you know? So I think that, that we need to be very careful about not worrying too much about the opposition and really rallying our allies and saying, let's get out there and do this.
0: Jonas Sachs is uh, CEO of Free Range and behind the story of stuff on the internet. And our also guest today here at Climate One is Yoram Bauman, author of the car- co-author of the cartoon introduction to climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. Yoram uh, Bauman, I'd like to have your take on the, the John Stewarts, John Oliver's, and how they how they address these issues and how they you know what, what they say about um, the, the the public discourse that's happening around climate.
1: I, mean, I, I do think they do. Um, uh,
0: They're not as funny as you, of course. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, <laughs>
1: Of course. That's why I refuse to go on their shows. <laughs> they keep asking me and I keep saying no. Uh, I, I, I do. I mean, I think what they do actually is fairly polarizing, but I think like what Jonah said, it's, it, it's probably not that, not that important. I mean, the people that are being polarized off to the negative side are people that you're probably not going to pick up anyway and ultimately are not... I mean, the people you want to reach are the people who... Uh, spend five minutes a year thinking about politics, right? Who think about, they live in, in, a, in you know, they think about does this going to affect me and my family and my sort of, you know, my immediate future. They're not, they're not thinking about climate change every day. Um, and it's hard, it's, when, when you're in the climate world, it's easy to think that everybody in the world thinks about climate all the time, either yes or deny or whatever, but the vast majority of people just don't think about climate change. They don't think about taxes either, which blows my mind. <laughs> Uh, but it's so, true. Uh, so what do you, what do you, so what do you say
0: at a, at a family event where you, you meet someone who doesn't live and breathe this uh, every day? Do you go to sort of the hope and opportunity at story? Do you go to the fear, like worry about your grandchildren? And how do you engage with someone uh, that doesn't spend that much time thinking about it? They heard about it, but think, oh, it's far away in time and space.
1: Well, I think that um, I think part of the opposition to it, part of the pushback from it is this idea that, oh, if I acknowledge it's a problem, then we're going to have to do something about it. And doing something about it is going to be very costly to me, to my family, to my community. And uh, that's why I tend to focus, especially as an economist, on the, well, we can do something about this without all having to you know, wear disposable underwear all the time. Uh, right, like there's this idea that we're going to have to go live on communes or or, or stop live, flying on airplanes or, or worse, or, live like Europeans. Uh, right? uh, <laughs> terrible. Uh, so it's not, you know, we can we can do things about uh, we we can do things about about climate change like British Columbia has done with tax reform. That I'm not saying that the people in British Columbia are uh, they're not excited about their tax system. They're not like yeah. I've been there. They don't say, like, we have the best tax system in the world, and we're thrilled with it. So it's not like an I'm going to Disneyland kind of story. It's an uh, it's, I went to the dentist, and everything's okay. And I think that's the most that you can expect. But I think showing them that, look, there's something that we can do about it that's tangible, that's going to address the problem, and that's not going to require, like, this massive change in everything that you do. You don't have to stop taking showers except for twice a week. Uh,
2: and, let me ask you a question about that if Jonah I can. Jonas X? Um,
1: yeah, so uh, I work on
2: communications and how to package things. I don't work on the numbers. And you're, you're really looking at the numbers there. I mean, I've worked on a lot of campaigns to say climate change is an opportunity. This can be great for the economy and great for innovation. And yet we have a, an economy, a global economy, that is completely run on the incredible power of fossil fuels to produce energy. Is it, are you saying that there are policies that we can put in place that will allow us to transition and solve this problem without making sacrifices?
1: I think there are things that we can do that will be low cost some people might argue that they're that they're no cost uh but certainly things that that um, um it's not gonna it, it's not gonna mean massive changes in standard of living for most people british columbia has a carbon tax they have reduced personal income taxes they've reduced carbon emissions by 10 or 15 percent uh i don't know if anybody here saw the olympics but they're okay uh, and I think and you could do the same thing elsewhere. I mean, California has a cap-and-trade system. It hasn't fallen into the ocean. Although we, do,
2: we, need, to, we need to reduce 80%, not 10 to 15,
1: right? Uh, but by 2050. Uh, that's, that's a long time from now.
0: So, Jonas X, are you implying that you think sacrifice is in order and we're not just owning up to that? We're not confronting the fact that there's no painless way? We're, we're, kind, of, we're kind of out of shape and overweight and there's no way to avoid a little uh, pain and sweat to get out of this?
2: I'm, I'm just taking advantage of the fact that I'm sitting next to an economist who knows a lot more <laughs> than I do. I'm not implying anything. But I do think that this, this question of what, of economic growth and what economic growth means and the, the, the ongoing push to, to grow, um, especially in the developed world, um, is something that we have to confront. You know, can we continue to fly around the world? Can we continue to have um, all the amenities of really cheap energy uh, in our lifetimes? My, my sense is that, as the, that that making that individual choice to no longer get on an airplane ever is very painful. But, as, but if society transitions, so that becomes a quite expensive thing, thanks to, you know, because we can't transition fast enough to alternative fuels, and people are just doing it less, and we're all doing it less, I don't think that's going to be terribly painful in, in itself. So I think that we can still live fulfilling and wonderful lives, and material, uh, material use does not actually predict a happier life but we actually need to confront these issues and we can't necessarily continue to grow our footprints while somehow just reducing our energy
0: use. I mean, the, you'll be very familiar with this here Bauman. Uh, the Club of Rome in the 70s said there are limits to growth and people have, have uh, derided them for saying, look, they, they missed the green revolution and agriculture, et cetera, but they might have been on target, but just off by a few decades. There are some people out there who are questioning this inevitable quarterly compounded growth and where that leads uh, in terms of resource extraction and, and ten billion people living like everyone in this room listening to this, uh, the math doesn't add
1: up. Uh, I suppose that's a possibility. I mean, you bring up the Club of Rome, and I think the Club of Rome has actually been that—that that whole issue has 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 not been great for the environmental movement. I mean, I give lots of talks to fairly conservative audiences, and, and uh, they say, "Yeah, you care about climate change, but 20 years ago, you were talking about how we were going to run out of oil." Well. It turns out we're not running out of oil. No, we're not.
0: Like, getting, like, uh, no time soon either.
1: No, I don't spend my time worrying about running out of oil. I spend my time worrying about not running out of oil. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the fish in the ocean are a different story. Uh, there
0: are there are resources that are hitting some real limits: arable land, water, etc.
1: Um, you, you could have you can you can have discussions about those. I tend to be actually, I'm a fairly neoclassical economist. I tend to be more on the Julian Simon. Yeah side of that debate than the Paul Ehrlich side of the debate, to be, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think that um, if tackling climate change is going to require not flying on airplanes, that's, that's a long way from where we are now. Uh, And the way that I like to think about it, I do like to put numbers on it. So if we had a carbon tax, let's take the BC carbon tax, $30 $30 per ton of CO2, 30 cents a gallon of gasoline, 3 cents a kilowatt hour of coal-fired power, a flight from the West Coast from San Francisco to New York, that carbon tax, which is a hefty carbon tax, $30 per ton of CO2, that's going to add about $15 to an airplane ticket to New York City. That is not the end of the world, people. (laughs) <laughs> right. And it is going to change behavior in important ways. And if we continue that for the next 40 years, it's going to accomplish a lot. So I don't think that people are ready to do those transformational sorts of things. But I'm not convinced that we that, that, that that's necessary right now at this point where we are.
0: What have you done in your personal life uh, to limit, I'd like to ask both of you, uh, your carbon handprints, the positive things, as well as the footprints, the things you've done reduced? You're Bauman?
1: Uh, this is a very economist answer to that. But what I do is uh, when people ask me if I will fly somewhere and perform for them, I charge them a lot of money.
0: <laughs> do you buy carbon no, offsets I, for your flight?
1: I, I, I don't, <laughs> but but. But if, if I have a number, and if, if you don't pay me that number, then I'm not going to get on an airplane. And partly that's climate-related, partly that's family-related, so there are all sorts of things tied up in that. But I've had people ask me, uh, you know, I've had people say, hey, we'll, we'll pay your way, we'll pay your way and put you up in a hotel and fly you to nice place X on the other side of the world. And, uh, and I say no. What else have you done? Ah... <laughs> uh, so let's see. I mean, I ride my bicycle around town. I don't drive very much. I mean, my my carbon footprint is is essentially airplane travel. And, and I think that I think that's true for 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 a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people in the room.
0: And are you saying that, that individual reductions don't matter? That's policies what matters. You kind of you're kind of.
1: No, individual that? individual reductions matter. I think it's important to think about your own carbon footprint. Uh, but I think that the policy perspective is is. Um, is equally if not more important. I mean, again, the way that I like to think about this is to think about what's driving climate policy in this century. What's gonna, what, what, what is going to determine that the end result in this century is not what we do in this country, but what happens in China, and India, and Africa. So the best story that I can tell you about that, that has sort of a happy ending, is that we develop, um, if we work really hard, and this is why I work on carbon taxes, if we incentivize the private sector, perhaps some public sector R&D, to drive the price of renewable energies and technologies down below the price of fossil fuels, then we've, then we've won. Right? Then we can sell those technologies to China and India and Africa, and they'll adopt them because they're, they're clean, because they're green, right? because they're cheap and not because they're green. Uh, so, so that's going to be hard. There are, if, we, if we can't do that, then, you know, then, then the situation becomes a lot more dire.
0: Jonas ax personal action to address your carbon footprint?
1: Yeah, well, let me, I'll
2: list the things that I've done personally, but I, to, to reduce it, and I'll say first that those things that I see as largely symbolic, because I think, I believe that those are ways of me declaring allegiance with this movement, and, and making that everyday, everyday uh, commitment. So I, I don't eat meat, I have solar panels on my house, um, I live two miles from work, and so I can walk and bike most of the time. Um, and Those are sort of the main things that I do that remind me every day that I'm part of this movement. I don't actually think it's making any difference uh, right this minute. But what I do do that I think makes a huge difference, or I hope to, is is that I devoted my life's work to finding the right ways to communicate. So that's my gift, and that what I do well um, is I help translate messages into stories that compel people and go viral on the internet and change people's minds and so i have helped like reach a million and a half kids with a climate change assembly um, by doing the creative work on it but that's what i can offer and i think that's where the big impact is by building political will and social will and cultural will and i think that everyone can ask themselves without obsessing so much about should i take that flight or not or should i eat meat or not those are ways that we express our allegiance the real way is not by denying ourselves it's really by bringing forth our individual gifts to being part of this movement. And for some people that might just mean, um, you know, providing a place to stay for for activists who are working on an issue. And for other people, that might mean using your art, it might mean using your voice, it might mean using your power as a teacher, it might mean having difficult conversations with people who know you and trust you. That's the most important thing we can do, is, is the positive stuff. The, the the reduction stuff is, again, just, just a way of really being part of it, I, I believe.
0: I think it's being part of it. I mean, I have electric car, uh, solar on the roof, uh, but I think that also having solar on the roof and having electric car is helping create markets and buying down the price of technology. And part of this the, establishing a new social and behavioral norm for electric cars uh, and and, uh, and solar power does sort of send a social signal, a market signal, like to have your own bomb, and if that has any resonance as an economist, uh, that my dollars and other people's dollars are helping to support markets of these new things?
1: Uh, sure, every dollar helps. Individual behavior is, uh, contributes, right? Like every, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, but lots of, lots lots of, drops, of drops add up to a bucket, it. right? So, so I, th- I think it's valuable to look at your own life and think about what you do, and I think mostly it's just a matter of being conscious of it. and and trying to be aware of the fact that the things that we do in our lives involve burning fossil fuels and that we should try to burn less of them, and can we, you know, think of good ways to do that? Um, But I definitely think that the policy and the the aspect of it is important.
0: The big levers of the policy. We're talking about uh, comedy and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Jonah Sachs, CEO of Free Range and Advertising Studio, and Joran Bauman, author of the cartoon introduction to climate change. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
2: My question is about humor. Humor is a great way of, uh, of course, getting truth across. So I'm curious, in in being a climate comic of sorts, what's the truth that you know that's hardest to get across with humor? You know, of the various truths we're trying to get across, which is the most difficult or which is the easiest to get across with humor, which is the one you're struggling with the most? Wow.
1: (laughs) It reminds me of this question that a fellow asked me in China. I did a talk at a Chinese university in this there was Q&A afterwards, and this student got up, and he said, what part of the Chinese economy impresses you the most? And he said, it's so hard to choose. I can't pick just one. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, there's lots of things that are that are hard to convey. Um, if I were to pick one thing, um, man, cap and trade? <laughs> cap and trade is hard. I mean, I think part of that is just that wrapping your brain around how that policy works is... is uh, is challenging and, and I actually think that that's partly, um, that's partly a challenge and it's actually partly a benefit. Uh, right? So, I work on carbon taxes and people say, oh, you could never get a carbon tax because it has the word tax in it right? and people are going to realize that you're going to raise the price of fossil fuels and then they'll never vote for something like that. And cap and trade essentially sort of does the same thing through the back door, but you don't have to use the word tax. So, the fact that it's opaque is actually potentially a political advantage. Uh, Notice that I'm not really answering the question, but uh, I'm saying interesting things, so hopefully that will make up for it.
0: (laughs) Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hello, my
2: name is Seamus Thornton, and my question is regarding uh, offsets like uh, TerraPass. I often go to climate protests and find people have driven there,
0: and I tell them about uh, carbon offsets. They ask me, do they do any good, and I'd like to be able
1: to tell them that they do.
0: Bauman, you have a part in the book on offsets and that's a very common thing okay um,
1: I think that they're um, potentially helpful I mean it depends on the individual offset that you're purchasing right so the challenge is always how do you how do you know about additionality so if somebody's planting trees how do you know that the tr- those trees weren't going to get planted anyway if somebody is um, uh, you know upgrading a factory how do you know it wasn't going to get upgraded anyway so that's always the challenge about offsets um,
0: they're very complicated. I was on a Virgin America Virgin America flight one time to a climate conference, and they have those uh, video screens in the back of the seats. And I ordered you order a sandwich. It's very cool. Uh, order your drink, and then they had carbon offset on the menu. So I paid ten dollars. Uh, For my carbon offset to offset the carbon for that flight and the flight attendant comes and says here's your sandwich Here's your drink and she looks at her cart and says I just can't find the carbon offset I don't know in here and and I said well no actually that's just I'm throwing money at something to make myself feel better Um, And she said you're the first person that's ever ordered that I didn't know that." So Let's have our next
1: question My question is, I really put a lot of stock in things that make the frog aware that the water is getting hotter and hotter, like the impacts of extreme weather, you know, to waking people up to climate change. I personally think that we're getting near to a a tipping point, a, a step function, you know, in awareness based on the idea that insurance rates need to go up in a lot of places where they're still low, there's been some fights over that. We've got places like Miami and New Orleans that are very vulnerable to the next big storm. Uh, do you guys think that there will be a big change in awareness in the next few years around these factors, or do you think it's just going to be, you know, the, the fog might not wake up very soon?
0: Jerome, after people read your book, it's going to change, but um, what do you think?
1: Uh, I, would, I, would be, uh, I would have low expectations about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been to... Um, I've been to places like Charleston, which exist at zero feet sea level, uh, and um, they don't seem to be terribly concerned about climate change. And I actually got a I got a tour of Charleston from a fellow who is a 14th generation Charlestonian. And I asked him, Ed Grimble was his name. I said, "Don't aren't you worried about climate change?" And he said, "No." He said, "Charleston has always been here, and it always will be." <laughs> uh, so I think that. Um, I think, it's, I think it's going to be a slow process. I do think the thing that, that gives me sort of uh, more hope lately is in the discussions that I've had. And I, again, I don't tend to, hold, to spend a whole lot of time talking to the choir. I mostly talk to fairly conservative groups, Florida Bankers Association, Barry Goldwater Institute, these sorts of folks. Um, the conversation has, a lot of it has moved beyond climate science and moved to climate policy. And I think that's, I think, I think that's, I think that's good.
0: And the business community is very much on board uh, with uh, co- corporations, large corporations. Some of them are starting to recognize the the risks here, and they kind of dodge the science because that's that's politically charged. But corporations have to think about uh, the SEC is now requiring them to disclose their carbon risks. They have to think about some of their factories and exposure. The employees want them to be seen as doing the right thing. So there is a change. Uh, I wonder if you, Ramam, if you pick this up in your talks. Uh, talking to corporate audiences that it's become, well, forget Al Gore and the science, but this is smart business, and, and there is risk and opportunity here, and General Electric hopes to make a lot of money selling windmills and other things.
1: There's 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 certainly an element of that. I think an additional factor there is even if you don't care about climate change as an issue, businesses care about climate policy. So you look at the recent Obama regulations, the 111D regulations uh, about power plants, uh, you know i was just at a at a conference that was it was um, it was a rural electricity providers mostly generators mostly coal-fired a lot of them from the south and they were meeting to talk about you know the next 5 10 20 years of their industry and what i told them was uh, i said you know first of all i said thank you because these are the people who they'd spent the, the morning that day talking about what are we going to do about these obama regulations and how are we going to meet the targets and those are the folks who are on the front lines right those are the people who are going to have to change their business models in, in important ways. So even if you don't care about climate change, a lot of those folks didn't necessarily buy into the, the whole Al Gore thing. Uh, they know that, that there are these regulations coming.
0: Jonas Sachs, go ahead.
1: I think also we've been waiting for that
2: giant storm that'll come and make everybody say, oh, now it's finally here. But actually, the, the, the change that's coming over time really is a, is a demographic shift that's so important and, and so much, I think, in our favor. Mm-hmm. Because as a time horizon of when these effects are thought to happen are coming closer and closer, have come closer and closer in, and as young people who have grown up with a basic understanding and been able to kind of grok it and not been able to sort of push it out of their minds as this is new information that I don't want to believe, they come up and are entering the political world, entering adulthood, or even becoming active before that. And it's not in my kid's lifetime, it's in my lifetime that's having an enormous impact. Because even saying, well, I care about my kids is harder for people to really act on than I care about myself. So just like we see with same-sex marriage, the aging out of people who couldn't even think what that was happened actually quite quickly. And that's a big part. of There's great communications around it. There was all kinds of shifts in culture. But really, it was about... People, young people coming up, who had always just assumed that this was okay, and I think with climate change, that's really on our side. What's not on our side is money and politics and all the other stuff. But um,
0: John, the the John Oliver piece that we we heard a little bit of, he says it's pretty clear we can't be trusted with the future tense because you know that you know protecting grandchildren uh, doesn't motivate people. But but Bauman, you had an experience at the American Enterprise Institute and one conservative group where some of the younger people. Like Jonah was just saying, they're more concerned than the old guard conservatives. Is that right?
1: Uh, I think that they, uh, younger folks are, are uh, certainly a little, a little more intuned. Um, I think that, especially the older folks who have lived through the Simon Ehrlich debate and you know the the we're running out of fossil fuels argument, um, there are folks who have they're jaded on one side or another of the argument, and the the younger folks are, I think are are potentially a little more open minded. But I think everybody um, the the, the benefit about the older folks is, is, I think, that they're ready to talk about policy issues. They're ready to talk about, OK, what are the economics of this, and, and is it going to work out? And I think if it pencils out, then I think you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to, to, to join in.
0: We had Steve Schmidt, uh, John McCain's presidential uh, campaign manager here uh, last year. And he said that basically the, the deniers would die off, basically, and the younger people would be more op- open to it. Uh, let's have our next question at Climate One.
1: Uh, Peter Joseph from Citizens Climate Lobby. I think part of the problem is we need to change the the, the frame of a tax. And uh, CCL has just uh, done a study that shows that if all the tax revenue is returned to households, it actually stimulates the economy. GDP goes up, employment goes up, all kinds of really good things happen. So as George Schultz says, it's not a tax if the government doesn't keep the money. And so a revenue-neutral carbon tax is a completely different frame than any old tax. So I'm really hoping you can work that into your uh, your cartoon book and your Oh it's next, in there, believe me. When your you next buy, it, you'll video. know it's in there. Um, and that can change the whole dialogue on how to harness the economy, which is ours. To harness the economy to dig us out of this climate ditch that we've dug for ourselves on the way to prosperity. Thank you.
0: Uh, So there is a proposal in Washington. This sounds interesting in part because it's the first one I've heard of that to uh, have a carbon tax and a commensurating uh, reduction in in the sales tax, which is something that people can see on basically every receipt they buy. Uh, Whereas in British Columbia, one of the critiques from people who implemented that up there was that people saw the increase in the carbon tax because it's on every gas pump. The, the oil companies are very happy to put it there. You know, the government's gouging you right here, but they don't see the reduction in the payroll tax or the corporate income tax, et cetera. They're less visible. So was that conscious in in uh, Washington to make something that people could see on every printed receipt at Starbucks? Oh, the sales tax went down.
1: Uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of it. It's also, you know, a... Carbon tax has some issues potentially with regressivity with impacts on low-income households, so reducing the sales tax helps address that regressivity. I don't want to sell it too hard, though, even though it's a policy that I personally am am very enthusiastic about. It's hard. If you ask people what the fairest tax is, you just poll the general public. People love sales taxes. They think that everybody pays them. They think that it's the same percentage of income for everybody, even though as an economist I can tell you that it's not. Uh, And I think there's something about kind of if you're already paying – I just I'll, – I'll be honest. You asked about things that I do that are good for the environment. I'll tell you something maybe that I did that's not – my wife and I just bought a car. Uh, and we spent $18,000 on this car, and then we spent another $2,000 on sales tax on the car. But you sort of don't – $2,000 is a lot of money. But we didn't really think about it because it's on top of the $18,000, right? So I think the fact that sales taxes are 10% or whatever they happen to be, people are – there's a behavioral economics part of it that says, well, if I'm already paying a dollar, paying a dollar ten is not that big of a deal.
0: So, is this thing going to pass in Washington?
1: Uh, I hope so. I think we have a chance. Um, and one of the things that gives me extra hope in Washington State is that we actually have some folks on the right side of the political spectrum who are uh, who are excited about this idea. So, there's a, um, a libertarian. Free market think tank called the Washington Policy Center. The environment director there fights with environmentalists all the time about all sorts of issues, but he likes the idea of revenue-neutral carbon taxes as long as they're revenue-neutral. Uh, and so I think that um, we're gonna we have sort of clever elements in our policy that are designed to to deal with impacts on low-income households, on manufacturers who use a lot of carbon. So I think that if you, what I like about carbon taxes, it sort of gets you a little bit away from the the story that says, well, you know. Um, you know, it's going to be this magic solution, and gets you into a realm of discussing. Okay, you know, can we afford to pay fifteen dollars more for a flight to New York? And what's the, uh, what are the offsetting tax reductions going to be? And how's this going to work out for my household, for my business? And I think it makes sense to a lot of folks.
0: Let's have our next audience question. Welcome.
2: Yeah. Hi. I am. I love the story of stuff, and I love all those videos, and I share them with everybody I know. They're simple. It's a great story. It explains a lot of things. You know that economics of, of consumption, or it just covers a lot of things. And what I'm, I'd like to know is what kind of impact, like what kind of measures do you have to what kind of impact that is making with all the people that have watched those videos? There must be some, because it's, it's altered my opinion of the economy, and just wondering from your point of view how you're measuring that. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll just say the interesting thing about viral videos is they sort of you send them out into the world And they take on a life of their own and it's not always easy to measure We have some measurements, you know about 30 million people have seen the series And so we know there's there's pick like that. It's been shown in 1500 classrooms They've built a online community of about 250,000 people who kind of take action um, And you know the big thing is we've grown that that series has been first to say hey There's a problem with our stuff and what happens and where it goes and the quick response was Oh my God, I, I better buy less stuff. What should I, you know, how do I respond to this? And what Annie's been able to do with that series- Annie Leonard-, Annie Leonard, Annie Leonard the, the, the host it. of the series, and, and to get her a message out there, has really been about to pivot it from, it's not just that you need to buy less stuff, it's that it's really about no longer thinking of yourself as a consumer and thinking of yourself as a citizen. That really we can change our identity, not just our shopping habits. And we've told that story over time. And as people have signed up to say, yes, I'm a citizen, that has gotten them into the sort of citizen boot camps that Story of Stuff does, to actually actions, to supporting other NGOs. So we measure sort of actions taken, but also cultural change, attitude change is often unmeasurable, but that's where the huge impacts happen. I, I made a movie called The Matrix back in 2003 that was about uh, factory farming. And the number of people that have come up to me and said, I changed the way I eat is huge. I can't really measure it, I can tell you how people saw it. But um, it's really that ability to have a new story to take, to take with you when you walk into the grocery store and to Target or you know, when you sit down to eat That is, uh, the world is fl- flooded with the other stories through advertising. We need to be creating those and we measure them as we can, but really just the process of producing them is so important.
0: We have to end it there. Our thanks to Jonas Sack, CEO of Free Range, and Joram Bauman, author of the cartoon introduction to climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today. time again. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.